Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. And I'm here today with Sarah Duty. How are you doing today, Sarah? I'm doing well, thanks. I'm excited to talk to you guys finally. Yeah, it's uh, been a lot of back and forth. Could you tell us a bit about your background? Yeah, so I guess to understand what I'm doing today, it helps to see kind of where I came from because most people or most of my friends and colleagues at least who work in UX had a very nonlinear path to where they got today. So I myself, I didn't even know about user experience when I was kind of contemplating my career. I had planned to study neuroscience, actually. I liked medicine, but I thought neuroscience might be the least kind of gory type of medicine. But I ended up taking a year off and did a little bit of tinkering with some marketing courses, got into graphic design, and through just a really nonlinear series of events, I kind of landed in this world of design, graphic design, web design, and I did that for a few years. And then I learned about front end coding because I realized if I design all these things, I really want to make sure they kind of end up looking in the browser how I designed them in Photoshop. And I thought, okay, I'll learn to code. So I did that. And then after I learned to design and learned to code, I kind of realized there has to be someone who could maybe sit in between these two camps and make sure that what gets designed can actually be coded and is kind of coded correctly. And so That's where I kind of fell into this field of user experience, information architecture, product management. And from there, I just ended up focusing my career really on the user experience side of things. And I've done user experience at a couple of startups in New York for a few years. And then more recently, three years ago, um, I ended up branching out on my own and I've been running my own user experience consulting business. And so like I said, a lot of people use the term user experience very broadly, I guess is one way to put it. To some people, they say user experience and they mean blueprints and wireframes and research and visual design and maybe some front end coding too. But I myself specifically exclusively on the what I call experience side of things. So by that, I mean the research, the blueprints or wireframes, thinking through the user flows. How does someone get from screen to screen? I tend to leave the visual design or the interface design to colleagues and collaborators just so I can focus really on that experience crafting. So could you explain the distinction there between the experience and the interface itself? Yep. So the best example really for anyone kind of starting to learn about user experience is to compare the process of building a website or an application, compare that to building a house, because everyone kind of is familiar with that process. So when you think of building a house, you have a lot of people involved, you have maybe surveyors at the beginning, and general contractors, and then all the different tradespeople, and then you have interior designers and things like that. And so when you look at building a house, the beginning stage where you think of where will the house be on the lot? And is the lot elevated or not? And where is the sun going to hit? And then working with the architect to figure out like how many rooms is the house? Is it two story or one story? And thinking through all that, where the architect is creating blueprints and things, that would be the more experiential side of things. 
UI, user interface design, is really where the interior designer would come into a, a house building process and say, okay, this is the kitchen. Now, will it have granite or quartz or marble counters? And are we doing stainless or non-stainless? Or, you know, what type of paint color should we do? So making the kind of shell that was crafted and turning that into a home, if that makes sense. Okay. And I really like the analogy of building a house or a building because, you know, it's the same in software where you have these ideas and you still have to put them up against the constraints. So you might say, okay, I want this button here and I want it to do this thing. But then the engineer might come back to you and say, okay, this will cost a lot more than you think it will. Exactly. And I think that's a really good point to bring up because today I see so many job descriptions for either big companies or startups who are looking to hire one or two people that they believe can do all of that. And that's just, it's crazy. You wouldn't hire one or two or three people to kind of build your entire house and think of all the kind of plumbing of the house or electrical of the house, or even thinking through just the geological side of things in terms of is the house on a slope and building up or building down for that. And if there's water in the house, how is it going to drain? Those same people likely are not going to be doing the interior design of the house as well. So everyone's looking for this mythological unicorn in product development, user experience land, and it just it doesn't exist. And I think one kind of reality check is to just say to yourself, you know, would you hire one or two people to do everything it takes to build a house? You just, you would never do that. So at a startup, when they have, you know, constrained resources, what do you think a breakdown of a team would be ideal? That's a great question. I think you definitely need to have an engineer on the team for sure. Hopefully that engineer has some type of coding abilities. And by that, I mean, you know, they could design a database if necessary, but I think they also need to have the skill set to be able to help do maybe a little bit of front end coding enough to do some prototyping. So you definitely need that skill set. You also need, I would lean more towards someone on the experience design side of things. So not on the visual design side of things. And I say that because you want to be thinking about not what it looks like early on, but how people move through the various tasks that you want them to do. So how do they move from screen to screen? You don't want to be thinking about, is the button round or square? Or are we using this shade of blue or that shade of blue? Those details just don't matter up front. But you also want to be thinking through the customers and consumer habits and market opportunity. And a lot of times the experienced designer will be able to focus on that as well. I think more so if they have probably operated in startups before and are used to wearing multiple hats um, in larger organizations, you may have a user experience designer who exclusively does research or who exclusively helps to interpret research versus conduct research. So I think the more money your team has, the bigger your team is, the bigger problems you have to solve. It's likely the more specific the roles within user experience can get. But I think if I was a startup, I'd be hiring more towards the experience side of things where they're thinking through the flows, the wireframes. They're really good at just rapidly whiteboarding ideas, maybe putting some light prototypes together with or without code, because today there's lots of programs that let you prototype without code. 
And also, I think you need the two roles, the experience role and the technical role. You need them to be able to collaborate so that they can feed off each other and ask each other, especially the experienced person to the developer. You need to be able to kind of gut check with them and say, hey, I'm thinking of doing this flow in this certain order. Does it make sense? And the developer might say, yeah, it makes sense. But if you swap around these two steps or you consider merging these steps or something, from a data perspective or from a speed perspective, you could have a huge impact on speed or complexity and things like that. Yeah, and I, I always like to tell people to get the engineers involved and give them more context about, like, say, why the design's a certain yes. way. Because knowing those constraints, they can come back to you with solutions that might be a lot faster to implement, for example. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And any project I work on, I'm always very adamant that where possible, getting the developer involved earlier can save you so much time and money down the road, especially not just to understand the technical constraints of you know the database and what you're working with, but also because a lot of times I find developers tend to have good user experience ideas. And I think from the developers I've worked with in the past, it's because as much as they have a very technical brain, I feel like they also have a very empathetic brain and they have this inherent ability to understand people or just not think about, you know, ones and zeros, but think about a real user and not just kind of the code that the user experiences. Yeah. And I think there is an analogous skill there because I mean, so I'm on the technical side myself. And when you write code, you're not writing code for the machine, so to speak, you're writing code for other developers. So you really have to think about, okay, is this code that I'm writing easy for another developer to use and understand when somebody else comes onto the project? That, I never thought about that as a developer perspective, but that's a good one, especially because today technical teams are getting so big. And so there's so much collaboration that you need to be able to have really clean code so that people can jump in at, at any point in the code and pick it up without having to spend a month onboarding themselves into your code base. Yeah. And sometimes it's even for yourself. Like I've definitely had instances where I've come back two weeks later. I'm like, who wrote this code? And then I look <laughs> it up and it's me. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I experienced the same thing when I do wireframes. Even yesterday, I was looking at some wireframes I had created in, gosh, I think May or June. And I thought, why the heck did I do it that way? You know, but <laughs> it must have been a reason. I just, I guess, hadn't thought it all the way through. <laughs> uh, just so I understand clearly, UX design, it's more on how the app works with the flows and design is more like making it look pretty. Am yeah. I understanding right? I think a better distinction is you could say they're within user experiences, one big umbrella at a high level, you could say there's two sections underneath. You have experiential design, which is going from screen to screen or thinking about the whole checkout process. But then there is interface design or visual design, if you want to say that, where you're thinking about what color is it? What font is it? Even down to copy sometimes or copy or text on the screen, I mean, or what does the button say, submit or continue, things like that. Those are kind of the visual details or polish details that a different designer would normally handle. Of course, there's a lot of interplay between the experienced designer and the visual designer because the worst case scenario is for someone like myself to design an app in wireframe format and then export it as a PDF and send it off to a visual designer and never talk to that person. 
too much gets lost in translation. And a lot of times in wireframes, you are never going to get the entire thing right on the first go. And so wireframes are kind of a really great attempt at what everyone imagines the product to do. But once you start to apply visual design to those wireframes, things will end up changing just because you realize, oh, like really this button should be over here. or Maybe this should be an icon instead of a paragraph of text. You just have to allow for that flexibility. And also, normally, if you're doing wireframes, that may hypothetically take four weeks, let's say. And then it's the visual designer's turn to jump in and make it all look pretty, quote unquote. It could be that in those four weeks, the business learned something and there's a new requirement or something. So for that reason, instead of going back and changing all your wireframes, you might just say, you know what, we'll deal with that change in design. So that's another reason why the experiential designer and the visual designer really need to be working in sync. You touched upon earlier that the visual design can kind of come later and the experiential design needs to come first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think especially in a new product, you want to spend more time up front in your wireframes because you'll appreciate this as a developer too. If you're kind of hashing out ideas for a product or an app it's a lot faster to make changes in wireframes than it is to make changes in visual design just because the wireframes, they don't have a lot of detail. They're really, you know, black and white documents that have sometimes placeholder text, sometimes quote unquote real text. It's probably not approved by, you know, the chief marketing officer, but it's not kind of Greek text or something. So changes in wireframes can happen really quick. When you get into visual design, we always like to say changes in visual design are probably going to take 5x the amount of time that they take in a wireframe. And changes in code are probably going to take even longer because they're just added levels of complexity. It's kind of a domino effect once you get beyond wireframes. So you have to allow for that time in your product lifecycle. Okay, so you want to get these things nailed down as early on in the process as possible. Otherwise, it could cost you even months of development time. Definitely, definitely. So what's your process for evaluating the UX of an app? When people come to me who have a product already in market, sometimes I do what's called in a product evaluation, where I first thing I look for is, does this thing have a clear value proposition? So regardless of what the founder or product manager has told me on the phone or on email, if I open up a browser and type in that product name or I download it from an app store, I try and imagine I've never heard of this before and is my first experience with that app, is it communicating to me the value that it's going to provide me as a user? Because I think so many times people really get about a C minus or D on their value propositions because you would just have seconds to capture people's attention and kind of give them a promise of what your product is going to do for them. And if that's not super clear, you're going to lose people. So First of all, I look for this very clear value proposition. And then from there, I look at the sign-up process or what's sometimes referred to as the onboarding process. And by that, I mean, is it obviously easy for me to sign up? But more so, as I'm signing up, am I being educated along the way? Or maybe a better way to put it is, is the value proposition being reinforced to me along the way? 
Are you teaching me to use your product along the way as I'm kind of signing up for it? And two companies to look at who have had examples of doing this well and also who've had examples of doing this not well. Two companies to look at would be historically look at Twitter's sign up or onboarding process and look at Pinterest. And if you Google those, you get a lot of results of articles or kind of slideshows that take you through the different versions of it that each company's had over the years. But once you kind of are aware of the fact that your sign up or onboarding process can be a great place to educate people, you'll see how both Twitter and Pinterest have tried to do this successfully and unsuccessfully, depending on what year it was, I guess. I think I read an article recently that said this is where Twitter kind of continues to struggle, where people say, oh, you have to be on Twitter and people go and sign up and then they're just not sure what to do. As an early adopter, it's the value of Twitter to me is obvious, but to people who may you know, not be in tech or not be an early adopter, I could see how they could kind of find it confusing. Like I sign up and then I follow celebrities and how is that different than Instagram? And so that's a great opportunity to educate people. Yeah. I mean, I'm an early adopter when it comes to tech, but not so much social media. And I know that I signed up for Twitter and I probably had it just sitting there for years. Yeah. And depending on when you signed up, I honestly don't know what year they started doing this, but I know that at one point after you signed up that they would then walk you through kind of a few screens where they would say, okay, now try and follow, or here's five people you might want to follow and you could go through, or maybe they even said, are you into sports? Are you into fashion, et cetera? And then they would recommend people for you to follow. And I'm not sure if their product did this. I'm not sure that if you clicked follow on, you know, different sports people or different fashion designers, it would then kind of start to pre-populate a Twitter feed with tweets from those people. But if it didn't do that, that would be a great example of how they could really show people the value of the product even before they're at the final step of the sign-up process. Because you can imagine then if, if you'd been signing up for Twitter and you're really into sports and I don't know, travel or something, and you're following, you know, the New York Knicks and whatever other sports teams, you're following Condé Nast Traveler magazine. And then there was a screen or a panel on the screen that was pre-populating tweets from these users. Then you could start to see the product in action. But if you waited until the end and then you said, yeah, okay, I'm all done signing up. And then you just landed on this news feed. It might be confusing, So that's just one place where I kind of see a lot of companies lose the opportunity to educate people in that critical onboard and sign up process. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because it's it's almost a shift in mentality because it's easy to assume that if your product provides value to people, people will just automatically start using it and get that it provides value. Mm -hmm. You almost have to be as proactive as you can be to get them to start using it in the way that you think they should be using it. That's right. Another point is that everyone thinks that your sign-up process needs to be as simple and as short as possible. But I remember reading an article, this is probably five years ago, and it said, you know, Twitter had lengthened their sign-up process, but they were seeing an increase in the number of people who completed the sign-up process and also an increase in quote unquote engagement of those people who signed up. And the article kind of said, you know, well, why is this? Wouldn't you think a longer sign up process would have higher drop off, which means 
people get, you know, two steps of five through and leave this sign-up process. But the point is that by, I think it's called through a progressive registration, you're kind of holding people's hand through a longer number of steps, but they're seeing value at each step so they don't get bored or confused and leave at step, you know, two of five or something. What mistakes do you see in the UX of an app besides the onboarding flow? Once you're past all of that, what mistakes do you see? Once you're past the onboarding flow, I guess kind of a half step past the onboarding flow is the first screen that someone sees after they are finished with your onboarding or sign up. A lot of people, when they're designing their product, people will design that first screen, whether, for example, in Twitter, it might be the news feed, or in Facebook, it would be the news feed as well, or in Pinterest, it would be the screen with all the beautiful images. A lot of designers will focus on those screens, but it will represent the experience that someone would have if they had been a user for, say, a month. So in the example of Twitter, a lot of designers would focus on the experience of you know being on Twitter for a month, following 100 people, and therefore you'd have a lot of tweets. A lot of designers don't think about the scenario where someone is only following zero or 10 people and there might not be any tweets. So what is the quote unquote initial state or sometimes what we call the zero state? Another example would be in some type of financial dashboard. Let's say you sign up for mint.com, but you haven't connected any of your bank accounts yet. Well, because of that, there's no transactions for it to analyze and give you insights on. So what does a user of mint.com who may not have any transaction history, what does their screen look like? That's going to look drastically different than someone's screen who's been using mint.com for a year. So you have to think about not just each screen or page in the experience, but the states of each screen. So what we call the zero state when there's you know nothing or a little bit of information the kind of normal state where the user has an average amount of information or kind of the maximum state where maybe they have, you know, 10 bank accounts linked for some reason with their mint.com. What does that dashboard look like? So you have to always be operating on these different spectrums of the content that would be in there so that you're satisfying all the users potential views of that. Okay, because then I might go to I might go to mint.com and sign in and then it's not it hasn't really prompted me to connect my bank account. So at that point, I'm like, what's the point? Right. I think I'm pretty sure in mint.com, they probably encourage you to connect a bank account immediately. But if you don't, you want to make sure that for those users who may be skeptical or, you know, not totally trusting it yet, that you're not giving them a terrible experience if they have not connected a bank account yet. So you have to be sure that you're designing um, that initial screen or dashboard for those users. And that might mean that it looks drastically different than what you know my dashboard looks like because I use it every month. But a lot of designers forget about these various states. It's the same if, if you think of search results. That might be a, a good example too. With If you're designing a search results screen, you have to think about what does it look like if you type in a term and you have you know a thousand results. That's easy. It needs to show the results. You need to have some navigation 
But what does it look like if you type in something that has zero results? A lot of people forget to think about that zero result case. And so you don't want to disappoint people. So you probably want to encourage them to maybe check the spelling or conduct a new search or did you really mean this instead of that? Little touches like that can really help deter people from just landing on this screen that says zero results or there's nothing for you here. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Shifting gears a little bit, in one of your posts, and I want to quote, you say that in the race to get to an MVP, the user experience gets compromised. Mm -hmm. Could you explain how this happens? Yep. So a lot of times when teams are working on, you know, the first version of their product or working on a new feature for their product, I really think that teams get tempted to focus on execution before they focus on defining why is this feature existing or why is this product going to exist. So they focus on executing and they focus on the how and the what instead of focusing on that why, really, what is the purpose of this? Why are we building this? And I thought about this because I kept seeing this happen over and over. And I thought, why does this happen? Why do teams kind of get almost like sucked into this cycle of focusing on the features before focusing on the why? And I think it's because as soon as you start executing, and by that I mean as soon as you start creating wireframes or writing code, it gives you kind of initial output, tangible outputs. You see a wireframe. You see code on the screen. You see how that code, you know, turns into a prototype. So it gives you this false sense of progress. You're making progress, but I think it's difficult for teams to spend enough time up front focusing on the why and understanding their customers, doing customer development, et cetera, because the tangible outputs don't come as quickly, first of all, but they just aren't as sexy as like a wireframe or code in a browser, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it almost doesn't feel like real work exactly. talking to customers. And it's like you're just talking, right? Yep. No, and I think the other thing is a lot of teams jump into execution mode, especially in the startup world, because like I said, it gives this false sense of security or progress. But I think a lot of teams are having pressure from investors or board members or advisors who are probably giving them all these ideas, you know, do it like this, do it like this. Have you seen this company? They're getting articles left and right from competitors popping up. And so all the team is thinking is, oh my gosh, we have to show progress because we can't raise more money unless we have a prototype. And so we need the prototype. And you focus on the prototype and you forget about the people that you should have probably spent a few weeks focusing on up front. And then by focusing on and getting into this execution mode, although you're creating tangible deliverables, I think you kind of end up hitting a wall at some point and you start to experience a common set of symptoms that really can be broken down into three buckets. And I think first, you end up seeing symptoms that affect your team. You see symptoms that affect your product and then ultimately users So your team might start to get burnt out. They might start to feel like they're just chasing a bunch of tasks or just have general frustration. Your product, this is where you see the most of these symptoms. You're going to see your product probably start to have scope creep, an extended timeline, probably go over budget, or sometimes worse, even a scope reduction where in your race to launch, you choose a deadline and then you realize you can't meet that deadline. So then you start what I call feature slashing. And when you start feature slashing, 
you have to be very careful because if you slash the wrong features, your product can end up just not making sense. So you have to be really careful of that. And then symptoms that you could notice in your users are kind of obvious, like people are not adopting your product or people are confused or they drop off in the sign up. And so you start to realize this and then you think to yourself, well, why are we over budget or why is our team disappointed or, you know, fighting or why is no one using our product? And it all really, I think, boils down to there was never a clear value proposition, never a clear problem being solved or never a clear opportunity was never identified so there was no kind of anchor. And I came up with this analogy. I think kind of the why or the value proposition of products is kind of similar to in college or high school when you'd write essays. You wouldn't start just writing an essay. The professor would always force you to write a thesis statement. And then all the paragraphs can kind of help support that. If you start just building a product without a thesis or a problem statement or a why statement, it's just hard to think about, you know, how do you know what feature to build if you don't have this thesis guiding you? So how can you come up with that thesis? How can you get back on track? Great question. So first of all, it requires a lot of the unsexy stuff. <laughs> it requires talking to users, figuring out what are their problems? How are they solving these problems on their own right now? And then how can you build a service or technology or system that helps them solve that problem more efficiently? And in terms of coming up with a, you know, specific value proposition statement, there's a lot of great resources out there. I can maybe include some links for your show notes. There's a really great exercise I first saw on TechCrunch. And it's kind of like a Mad Libs approach. You remember the Mad Libs where you say like, give me a noun, give me an adjective, and then you end up with this funny paragraph. It's similar to that where you're kind of filling in these blanks of this template. But the reason that a lot of value propositions, I think, don't work out for teams or they are not remembered by teams, it's probably just a statement that's in a PowerPoint that no one ever looks at it again. I think that happens because a lot of times today's value statements are way too vague and they're full of stereotypes. So it's things like we're building a social network or we're building a platform and it's for teenagers or soccer moms or all these generalizations that just don't get specific enough because the reason that you want one of these statements is so that it's specific enough that it's going to be memorable so that when you're in a meeting with your team, maybe the user experience person and a developer and a product manager, if you're all in a meeting and you're debating a bunch of features, someone can say, hey guys, let's just hit pause, go back to our value statement and kind of reframe these features and make sure that they're fulfilling this value statement. And if that value statement is too vague, then you're not going to be able to play that devil's advocate exercise of saying, does feature X really solve the problem of, you know, this specific type of person? Because if you say, does feature X solve the problem of teenagers, someone on the team is going to say, of course it does. So the more specific, then the easier it is to map it to a feature, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And it, it kind of comes back to what you were saying about the symptoms. Like on the flip side, if you're having trouble deciding which features should be cut and which features shouldn't, then chances are that your value prop isn't strong. Is that right? Yeah. 
And another great little tip for people is even if you have a great value proposition, it's just inevitable that you're still going to get into debates of features because people are human and people can get passionate about features. Maybe they saw it in another product and they really like that product and they think it's a great feature for you guys, or maybe they dreamed it up in their sleep. And so they're kind of married to the feature. And so if you find that you're kind of debating features in a meeting, it helps just to kind of hit pause and ask the other person on a scale of one to 10, how passionate are you about this feature? Because you'll probably find that one person says, like, I'm a three, and the other person says, I'm a nine. And then it's kind of, you'll be able to identify who kind of just needs to compromise. You know, I think the reason you end up in these feature debates a lot of times is just because people just kind of want to go back and forth. But if you can more quickly identify who should compromise, then you can just move on. So just take time to do a gut check with each other and figure out like, how passionate are you about this? Okay. And why is that? Oh, now I can understand your perspective. Let's move on rather than sit here for another hour. Yeah. And I would like to talk about stories a bit because you did say, you said product development is really about being a storyteller who translates the ideas that a founder has. And I think the conversations tend to be about features a lot when in some cases they should be about stories. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yep. I think it was in 2012. I wrote this blog post because mainly I was frustrated in kind of what I just described, sitting around, being in meetings, having people debate features and get into kind of edge cases of scenarios that would, you know, have a 1% chance of happening. And I just thought, man, we're wasting so much time. How do we bring the focus of our teams away from, you know, pixels and product roadmaps and back to people as, as important as pixels and product roadmaps are at the end of the day, if our products are not solving problems for people or creating new opportunities, then, you know, we're kind of just wasting our time, I guess. And so I thought, how do we maintain this focus on people? And I thought, well, if we got better at creating shared stories about our users, then like I said earlier, we could have this frame of reference so that when we get into these debates, we can kind of bring it back to the people. And so I wrote this article, it kind of went a little viral, I guess. And then everyone started to ask me, okay, we buy into this idea that like we really need storytellers or product storytellers at the heart of our product development processes. So how do we do that? And I didn't have an answer back then. I just wrote this like idea. I didn't have the solution yet. But over the past couple of years, I've been kind of thinking about it more. And I think it boils down to two main activities. One of them is, I think, reframing the idea of personas. So especially in the user experience community, the idea of personas is very polarizing. And for anyone new, personas are kind of like little avatars. They're examples or aspirations of who you hope will use your product. Hopefully, those personas are based off of research. But I would say more often than not, personas are done without research. And that's why there's so much polarization on, you know, people either love or hate personas. And people tend to hate personas because they're just representative of fake people. It's, you know, someone sat in a room and made a pretty slide in a PowerPoint that said, our ideal customer is 33 to 39 and has two kids and makes this much money and lives in suburban Chicago and, you know, has every kind of 
stereotype and white picket fence and dog. And that is, <laughs> that's not specific enough, right? And so how do you create more useful personas? You have to base it off of research, which all goes back to that why statement I said before, you know, you need to spend the time up front getting to know your customers, understanding them so that you can create these much more accurate personas. And so because personas have such bad rap, I thought, okay, we'll just take the idea of personas and maybe if we reframe the product development process around storytelling, this will help people embrace personas more. So I thought, okay, we need to create characters up front. This is not rocket science. It's not anything new. It's really just reframing the concept of personas around something that doesn't leave a bad taste in people's mouth. So in a, this lean product development course I teach, one of the key activities in the beginning is First of all, don't code and don't make a wireframe for probably the first four to six weeks of the course. And so during that time, the students are doing customer development. They're researching their market. They're talking to consumers. They're doing surveys. They're at people's houses or out doing field research, watching them, you know, how do you do this on the computer? How do you do that? And getting to know them as real people so that then they can make a lot of observations and insights and get a more accurate picture of who their customers are or characters are. And then once you have that in place, then the seconds after you then create, you know, this thesis statement or problem statement, then the next thing I always have my students do is even before jumping into wireframes is to just storyboard out what the product experience is. And the reason that storyboards are so powerful in my experience is that it forces you to start thinking about your product prior to their experience on the screen. Could you explain what a storyboard is? Yeah. So storyboard, I have not studied filmmaking at all, but it's very similar to what they do in filmmaking, where if you are making a film, you go through this storyboard process where you're literally drawing at a very low fidelity and low level of detail. You're drawing out key screens or key shots that are going to kind of highlight the key parts of the story. So if you think back to maybe elementary school when you were in creative writing class or something and in every story there's that kind of graph, hero's journey, and it's like the introduction, the plot development, the character introduction, the big like climax of the story and then the ending action and all that. It's similar to that where you're trying to highlight those key interactions or key moments that someone's going to have with your product. But the point of doing it is that you want to think about people's experience before they ever, let's say, log on to your website or open up your app. So maybe if you use, let's say, Mint.com, for example, because we already talked about it. Mint.com is the website where you go, enter in your bank accounts and investments, and it sucks it all in and gives you a nice picture of your finances. So if I were going to storyboard Mint.com, the first little scene or Literally, if you take a piece of paper and divide it into eight, the first box at the top left is not going to be, you know, Sarah at a computer looking at a dashboard because my experience needs to start before that. And I might not knew it, but my experience is going to start with my problem. So my first little box might be Sarah in front of like statements from five banks and to Fidelity and Charles Schwab, all these investment things and like trying to reconcile them or in front of my checkbook. And so it's highlighting 
the problem. And you're also thinking about the problem, but also where is someone? So am I at home? Am I at my office? Am I inside or outside? Those details are important. For example, if you're doing some mobile app that someone's going to be using outside, you need to capture that because that's important to someone's experience because it's pretty hard to see your phone outside in the sunshine. So even though you can't control a lot of that, you have to design for that. And that's why you kind of need to look at the whole interaction and not just like, oh, now I'm at my dashboard because something happened to get me to my dashboard. Okay, yeah. For example, with Airbnb, like half the experience is not even on the website itself. Exactly. I think that's a great example. And also, you're on the website, but then you're at the person's home. And then like you're in London and you need a restaurant recommendation. You ask that person. Of course, you're asking them through the app, but it's not just about like book a room or book a house. It's everything else that happens beyond that. And it seems like what you're talking about is what you're doing there is you're going from abstract to more and more concrete. You're not just talking about a feature with some bullet points. You're digging into the story and getting a better understanding of the person. Yep. And also, you're not just thinking about the features. You're thinking about the more emotional side of things, too. You're thinking about what is this person thinking? What is this person feeling? What is this person expecting might happen? And then less kind of emotional things, but still relevant things. So the environment or the time that's being saved, all those things together wrap up to create the experience. I always say, you know, the experience is not just what you see on the screen or on the laptop or the iPhone. It's the culmination of everything that happens, you know, before and after that as well. So is a storyboard visually, is that kind of like a comic strip? Yeah, I was going to mention that. I'm glad you brought it up. I think if you're still kind of trying to wrap your head around a storyboard, just think of a comic strip. And you do not have to be a great artist. It can literally be stick figures. The goal is not to win an artist award for this storyboard or like early wireframes for that matter. The goal of any sketch or storyboard or early wireframe is to help facilitate communication. So we're not looking to, you know, focus on the how wonderful you can sketch an eye of someone on your storyboard. It's like, is it helping us all get on the same page, understand the customer journey, and more importantly, understand the customer as well? Okay, and I do want to point out that when you say storyboard, you're not just talking about the screens on the app. You know, you're going to have times when you have actual people walking around there. With the Airbnb example, it's You're on the website booking the room in advance, but then, you know, you're um, out and about in London and you're maybe having a fight with your traveling partner about where to eat lunch. And then one of you remembers like, oh, we should just ask our host because they're, you know, our local built-in tour guide. And But you want to capture that maybe heated moment where you're having a little fight because when... Airbnb's app solves the problem of where to eat at night, that's a big win for the Airbnb experience. Okay, so maybe when they're deciding about a feature that allows better communication between the host and the guests, then that story would come up in the discussion. Yep, exactly. Okay, so I've been, you know, I've been kind of wondering about this myself because a developer Like, it's very objective to judge whether they're good or not. You give them the specification and they either build it as you expected or they don't. 
but it's a lot more hazy with UX um, because anybody, you know, who has a pencil and a piece of paper could draw a wireframe. So how can you evaluate who's good and who's not? <laughs> That's a great question, especially because it seems like everyone I talk to wants to become a user experience designer. And so I think you're right. There's a big difference between learning how to use a wireframing software versus being able to create a great wireframe or more importantly, think about and craft a whole experience. So I guess specifically when it comes to wireframes, key things that I would look for are things like on the wireframe, are there clear zones? And by that, I mean, you want to make sure that on a wireframe, there are zones that can catch the user's attention. The, the last thing that you want to have happen is someone look at a wireframe or look at a screen and there not be any kind of zones that capture the person's eye. So you could also say hierarchy. There needs to be a visual hierarchy on the page that help kind of draw someone's eye to this is the most important section that you should be looking at. Then you might want to look over at the right and then back to the middle. So depending on how you kind of group things or size things or even shade things, and by shade we're only talking, you know, black, white, or gray, that can help guide someone's eye to the areas of the page where you want them looking. So is the page kind of blocked out? Does it have good hierarchy? Next, I'd be looking for things like, have they done a good job at using space? And space can sometimes mean white space. A lot of people are scared of white space, but white space can do a lot, especially to help kind of create these zones on a page. Then I'd be thinking about different font sizes. And we're not talking about specific fonts. We're just really saying the difference between like a really big header versus some subtext versus body text, let's say, because those are things you want to convey in design because it does help show where the user should be focusing on a page. And then maybe a little bit more specific are things, for example, if you think of a form and with a bunch of form fields on that form, a really good designer would think about if the form has 20 fields, let's say, you don't just want to have all 20 fields in a row. You want to try and group those logically. So do maybe three of them go together? And could you put a box around three of them to help kind of group them so that the user feels less intimidated than just 20 form fields in a row? Are the form fields labeled well? Do the wireframes account for form errors? This is something we see a lot where people have designed a beautiful form and then you say, well, what happens if, they don't fill this part in or what happens when they click on the date picker drop down. You need to account for those details. We already talked early on about the states of pages. So kind of the minimum average and maximum. If you remember that search results example, no search results. So that would be another thing. Also, you know, beyond wireframes, if it's a pretty complicated product, wireframes, I don't think can do it justice. I think you have to take a step back and do what I call um, user flows or user journey maps where you're showing the relationship between screens, not just each screen. It's one thing to design a set of wireframes that has 30 screens, but you need to see how all those screens connect together. And then I think more importantly is you don't just want to look at those wireframes that the designer made. You want the designer to talk you through them so that you can understand, first of all, their role because someone's ability to talk through them is going to give you a very good picture as to their level of participation in those. <laughs> and also, it just will help you assess their communication skills as well. Because 
Um, in order to be successful at user experience, I always tell people you should first learn how to write and then you should learn how to speak because half your job is going to be getting people to understand these and that's going to come likely through presenting them or sending emails and things like that. And so if someone can take you through or talk you through these wireframes, it's also going to be indicative of you know their thinking that went into it. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Where can we keep up with you? So you can find me on Twitter. It's Sarah with an H and then duty, D as in design, O-O-D-Y. I love to tweet. You can also find me over at sarahduty.com. I try and blog a few times a week. And then I also have a weekly uh, user experience newsletter that goes out every Friday. And there's links on Twitter in my Twitter profile and on my website of how you can sign up for that. So those are the three best ways to stay in touch with me and kind of what I'm learning and the lessons that I try and pass on to my users every week. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code Podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at TalkingCode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to TalkingCode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.